0: So I mean, we're going to start with a little bit of a history lesson today, right? You guys like history? Am I the only one? I used to really like the History Channel, and then they stopped doing anything about history. And now they just, you know, this pawn shop show. I like that, though, actually. I like the pawn shop show. But... Oh, yeah. So now I don't know what. Now they're just making knives on the History Channel. I don't get it. Anyway, so we're going to do an actual history lesson. Pretend this is the real History Channel. Okay, so at one point... You know the story. There's Moses, right? Charlton Heston. Let my people go. The whole thing, right? So they go into the land. Joshua is the leader. After Joshua, there was a period of 400 and some odd years where the people were led by a group called the judges. And we think of judges like you know Judge Judy. You're not the boss, applesauce. That you know. Can you believe this guy, Bert? I love Judge Judy. Anyway, uh, (laughs) she has a book called "Don't Pee on My Leg and Tell Me It's Raining." I love it. Anyway. So, but not like that kind of a judge. Think of like just a military leader, right? So these military, sort of spiritual, military leader kind of people led led them. The last one of those was a guy named Samuel. And Samuel um, had these sons who were awful. And the people were looking at Samuel's sons and thinking, boy, I really don't want these guys to be the next leaders. So they go to Samuel and they say, tell the Lord, we want a king. And Samuel's heart is broken. They've rejected my leadership. I failed them, all this stuff, you know. And God tells them, they've not, you know, rejected you. They've rejected me. Give them their king, right? And so Samuel gives him a king. His name is Saul. What kind of king was Saul? To quote Jim Carrey, he was a (laughs) loo-hoo-hooser, right? He started pretty great. He ended pretty terrible. So then, right in the middle of Saul's reign, Samuel—he uh, lies to Samuel, does all this stuff. Samuel goes to him and says, "You're not going to be the king anymore. You know, I'm going to take the kingdom. God says He's going to take the kingdom from you. He's going to give it to somebody better." So the next king is a guy named David. David shows up, and in one sense, he's a magnificent king. He's the greatest king probably that Israel ever had. But at the same time. He also was a, to quote Jim Carrey again, a loo hoo right? He, he steals a guy's wife, then he kills him. Not a great guy. And then the end of the David story, you're like, well, that was just in the middle. Maybe it's better at the end. Well, at the end, he did this thing where he counted the people when God told him not to. And it was this whole thing, right? So David was the pinnacle of the kingdom. He was the greatest king. And even he was not that great, Then his son Solomon took over, and he started, he built the temple. He was wise, you know, wise Solomon. But what did Solomon do? He broke, the the story of Solomon, the way that it's written in the book of Kings, is basically if you take the chapters from the Torah that tell where God says, eventually you guys are going to have kings, and this is what I need the kings to not do. Solomon goes point by point and breaks every one of the rules, and the story of kings shows how that happens. And then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. He also stinks. And so one day, the people come to him and say, man, your dad was really rough with these taxes and all this stuff. It was hard. He was a hard king. Can you lighten up a little? So what does he do? What every trust fund uh, marina bro does, I'm better than everybody. I'm going to ask all my idiot friends, um, (laughs) you know, what, what to do. He goes, he asks his idiot friends, and he comes back, and he goes what is the line, my little finger is bigger than my dad's leg? But that's not what he says. He says, my something else is bigger than my dad's leg, <laughs> right? That's his answer to them. And the people rebel against him, and the kingdom splits into two. Then the book of Kings goes on, king after king after king, loser, 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 <laughs> only kind of a loser, 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 kind of a loser, a little bit better, but still a loser. This is the story of the kings of Israel, And eventually, it gets so bad with the people, rejecting the reign of God, that uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, God sends the Assyrians in, what would that be, 722 BC, he sends the Assyrian army, they come, they capture all the people of Israel, and they scatter them and murder the rest. So the, the nation of Israel is just completely wiped out. The southern kingdom, which was just a few of the tribes of Judah, continued for a little while longer. But in 586, and we're actually going to learn a lot about this because I'm like 85% sure the next book we're going to do is Ezekiel. Um, And Ezekiel was a prophet during the exile. Um, And so uh, God sends Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to to wipe out the people of Israel. And one of the last kings, um, the end of the book of Kings is really weird. There's a king who's like a puppet king, but he's from the line of David and... um, Nebuchadnezzar takes him and kills all of his kids in front of him, and then pokes his eyes out with hot pokers. So that was the last thing he ever saw. And then throws him in jail. And you think, boy, this is weird. Because here's what happened. When David came, uh, when David was the king, at one point David said to God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house. And God said to David, no, but I'm going to build you a house. Meaning, from your descendants, the Messiah, there's going to be a king like you, but even better. Like the true and better king is going to be a descendant of David. So as you read the book of Kings, you're supposed to go, is this the guy? Is Solomon the guy? And then what does he do? He takes foreign wives. He breaks every... No. Uh, he follows all these idols and stuff. No, Solomon's not the guy. What about Rehoboam? He is clearly not the guy. You know, what about all these other guys? As you go down the list, none of them are the guy. You get to the end of the book of Kings and this dude has his eyes poked out and you're thinking, boy, what what happened here, right? What's the deal with this, this promised king? God said he would give us a true and better king, and he hasn't done it. And then the book of Kings ends on this really weird story where the king in Babylon goes, actually, I'm going to let that guy out of jail, and he gets to eat at my table. And then that's the end of the book of Kings. And you're like, this is very anticlimactic. What happens, right, to these people? But the the reason that story is so cool was it's just a tiny little God-didn't-forget-His-promise that a king is going to come from the line of David. And so for all these years, right at that point it had been more than about 500 years, the people are waiting in anticipation. Well, the thing is, they don't get another king for a while. So what happens is the Babylonians get taken over by the Persians, uh, Cyrus and all those guys. Then the Persians... Get defeated by a guy you might have heard of, Alexander the Great, right? Uh, Colin Farrell. And Alexander the Great dies. And when he dies, I've told you this part before, but when he dies, right as he's dying, they're like, who's going to take your place? Who's going to be the next Alexander the Great? And he had four generals who were kind of in charge of different parts of his empire. And he goes, the strongest, uh, and he dies right? What a jerk. <laughs> because all that, if he had just said a name, the whole history of the world would have been very different. So there were two, two groups, uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, who were kind of always fighting over the land of Israel. So the, new, the Old Testament ends, and then you have these, the, this intertestamental period, 400 and something years. And so these two groups, these Alexander the Great's generals, are constantly fighting over the land of Israel, and there's this whole history that I'm going to tell you now that they never nobody ever talks about, but it's actually really uh, important to understand the New Testament. So you guys know the story of Hanukkah, right? You've heard this story, where here's what happened. So the um, Seleucid king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, not the third, guys. that's really important. It's the fourth. Uh, <laughs> um, was this brutal dictator who sacrificed a pig in the temple, did all sorts of really awful stuff that he wasn't supposed to do. He would punish people for following the laws of Torah, that sort of stuff. And so the Jewish folks uh, rebelled. And there was a guy named Mattathias and his sons, and they led this revolt. It's a long story, but they ended up winning. And one of his sons was a guy named Judas Maccabees, Maccabees, um, which means, Maccabees means the hammer. His name was Judas the hammer. This is like the original WWE wrestler, right? The Judas the Hammer, he comes down, uh, and he becomes the leader during the revolt, and uh, they end up winning. The people were then led by basically this family, and at first, they were high priests, and then they were kings, and so I want to tell you, uh, let's see, I want to tell you about some of these guys, right? Some of these kings of Israel during this intertestamental period. The first was a guy named Simon, and under his rule, they were still technically uh, a vassal state of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is not the glorious reborn state of Israel, right? They're still just a puppet kingdom. Then the next guy, giant John, I should know how to say that word, um, John (laughs) uh, Hieracanus, Hieracanus, um, under his rule, Uh, the kingdom had full autonomy. So they got rid of the Seleucid rulers for the first time since 586 BC. So this is somewhere between 134. So this has been a long time. This is the first real leader of the people in a long time. But this guy, uh, he wasn't that great. I don't know. I wrote some things down. He did. He destroyed the, you know, the Samaritans had their own like form of worship, their own temple on Mount Gerizim. He sent an army up and they destroyed it. Um, he brought Galilee back into the kingdom of Israel. So Jesus then would be from uh, Israel, right? So at this point, Galilee was not part of his uh, kingdom. The next guy, great baby name if anybody's looking, Aristobulus. Um, He was the first Hasmonean leader. So this, this dynasty of kings is called the Hasmoneans. He was the first one that called himself a king, right? So this is, okay, maybe this is the king of David, right? The, the, the true and better king. Maybe this is the guy. Uh, no. The first thing he did, he becomes king. They give him the crown. You know, they, I don't know how it works. I'm sure there was a crown, right? They give him the crown. The first thing he does is he takes his mom and all his brothers and he throws them in prison because he was afraid that they were going to, um, he was afraid they were going to take the kingdom away from him, right? Good family man, you know? Uh, the next guy... Alexander Janius, uh, or something along those lines. So once uh, Aristobulus died, this dude was the, one of the brothers in prison. He gets out of prison. He becomes the king. During his time as king, though, he was, the, he was probably the worst one. So during his time as king, the people didn't really like him. You know, isn't this happening in, where, what did I see, Sri Lanka? The president is running right now. Like, I saw him getting on a boat. Like, little we're running from his car to a boat with his suitcases, Right? So that kind of happened to this guy. And uh, during his time uh, as king, there was this big big revolt. What he did was he sent an army and killed 6,000 of his own people in the city of Jerusalem. Like he squashed this revolt. And he captured 800 people during that battle. Then he took those 800 guys and inside the city of Jerusalem, up and down the streets, he crucified them. Then he waited until everybody's families went to go mourn in front of the guy, their their dad, getting crucified. And then he sent an army in and killed all the families in front of the guys on the cross. So that that would be the last thing that they saw before they suffocated, right? Josephus, who's like a historian, he adds that during this time, during that whole thing, what this guy did was he got drunk and he partied with his friends in the city, walking up and down the streets, laughing at all the people on the cross, on the crosses. This dude is clearly not the true and better David. Then what happened was his wife, he died. His wife, Alexandra, was the queen, one of the only queens like this of the people of Israel. Um, She was the ruler who, her big uh, contribution was, she let the Pharisees be in charge of everything. So the Pharisees' uprise was because of this lady. Okay, then she had two kids, Aristobulus II and Heracanus II. This is where it gets fuzzy. So these two guys both want to be king. You ever seen two brothers fight over something? Anybody here have brothers? My mom and I were talking about this over the week. One time my brother tried to hit me with a baseball bat, and I ducked, and he broke a window. Right? That's how brothers fight. We really go for it. Right? Those are my Legos, and I'll kill you if you touch them, literally. Okay, so these guys are grown brothers fighting over a kingdom. And so what they do is they both go to Rome and say, hey, Romans, make me the king. And what Rome did was what any squabbling parents do, right? Uh, or Parents of squabbling kids do, right? Is they just go, shut up, both of you. I'm in charge. <laughs> and so Rome came in and said, neither of you gets to be the king. And they sent a guy named Pompey. You guys know that name? He was like with Caesar and all that stuff. This, the general, he came in, he conquered Jerusalem and the whole dynasty was over. So they had all of these hopes and dreams. David, the king from the line of David, is going to show up. And he is going to inaugurate this new glorious kingdom of Israel. And at the end of the whole Hasmonean thing, what happens? Rome's in charge. So why give you all this history? Right? We just did a whole... That was more history than the History Channel's had in 15 years. Why give you all of this? Who cares? Well, it sets the stage as Jesus now comes into Jerusalem. You see, there's a whole depth of history behind Palm Sunday. Um, I just read this fascinating book that I think I'm just going to read it again. You ever have a book so good, you're just like, I probably missed something. I'm going to just read it again right now uh, and start it over. That's what I'm doing. And this book was about the difference between sort of communal collectivist cultures and individualist Western cultures, right? So it's mostly Eastern. Uh, Middle and Middle Eastern cultures and Western cultures. And the book specifically was talking about how that colors and affects the way we read and interpret the Bible. And one of the things the author talked about was how people in collectivist cultures identify with their people's history in a way that individualists don't. So for example, in individualists, and in, as an American, if I read something about the bad things in our nation's history, something with slavery or with how we treated Native Americans or whatever, or uh, Chinese railroad workers, whatever it is. If I read that, I go, wow, that's really messed up what they did to those people. Okay, But a collectivist would read that and go, wow, that's really messed up what we did to them. Do you see the difference there? There's like an identification with people in their own history. And um, that also goes the other way, though when your people are the ones that are the victims of something like that, there's a sense in collectivist cultures, it's a like, wow, this happened to me and my people, right? This happened to us. And so when we look at this history of Israel, we have to remember this is a collectivist culture. And so their longing for this true king of peace. Their connection to this history is way stronger than anything we would have in um, in individualist cultures. I, I, uh, let's see if this loads, it did load. I am going to read you just part of this article, okay, from CNN, this is just from a few weeks ago. Is there a date on here? No, there's not, great. Um, So from CNN, a stretch of uh, prime, uh, Southern California beachfront real estate was returned to the descendants of its black owners on Tuesday, nearly a century after the parcel was taken by the city of Manhattan Beach. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to give the land back to the family owners, Charles and Willa Bruce. Known as Bruce Beach, this resort, there was a resort there, uh, had offered black families a place to enjoy the California life and was a labor of love for the couple. They purchased the land in 1912 for $1,225. Prices have gone up and built several facilities, including a cafe and changing rooms. So basically, all the racist white people back in the day didn't want to go to the beach with black folks. And so they made them have their own beach. And so these people bought this beach, they opened up a little facility, but harassment from white neighbors and the Ku Klux Klan tore down, tore away their dreams. The final blow came in 1924, when the city took the property away from the family through eminent domain and paid the couple a fraction of what the property was worth. They wanted a city land, the city wanted to build a park, uh, wanted the land to build a park. The property, now estimated to be worth over $20 million, was transferred to Los Angeles County in 1995. The houses directly next to the property have price tags of around $7 million apiece. Last year, Governor Newsom signed legislation that would enable the county to return the beachfront property to the descendants. Um, I'm going to skip the part that where it tells me to enter my email. Let's see, keep going. The new, land, the new law was authored by Senator Steve Bradford, who sits on the state's newly formed reparations task force. This is what reparations look like, said Bradford, insisting that the county is not giving anything to the Bruce family, just returning their stolen property. Tuesday's vote finalized a proposal presented by Holly Mitchell, the chair of the county board of supervisors. Wait, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Um... Uh, to where the family starts talking. All the terror that is still in our hearts regarding these criminal acts that were perpetrated, this is somebody from the family, perpetrated against the innocent people of our family. It's important for people to understand more so than just money was lost. We lost our family to this, uh, said a spokesperson um, for the family. This is just one step towards justice. Um, and it goes on, That you know, um, this last quote, I feel some sense of peace I feel a sense of joy. I feel honored uh, that the Most High would use me as a vassal to help make this happen, to be a catalyst for this happening. This was the, um, the the lawyer who helped them. Like she she says, this is the most important thing I'll ever do. Anyway, they have this picture, this great picture. I I'm gonna show you, of the one of the family members just standing on the beach, just looking totally like satisfied with what has happened. Now, did. Uh okay, Manhattan Beach, that's LA, right? Did I say that? Is that like fancy LA? I don't know about LA, right? Okay. So here's the thing. Uh there was this nobody took anything from these people that are still alive. They weren't alive when this happened. But there's this sense of like family connection that they have. And this this longing that they had to get this beach back. Right? There's this whole shared history here of our grandparents were robbed of this sort of thing. Um, I'm an individualist, so I don't actually care. But my family has a story where some crooked lawyers stole a piece of land from um, this old lady that was in my family that's now like the middle of Fifth Avenue. Um, my dad has like the court case and the newspaper articles and stuff. Uh, but I'm an individualist, so I don't care. <laughs> right? But as a collectivist, this family, like you can tell this was more. They said this wasn't just about the money right? But here's the thing. This is a 100 years of longing for this family. a 100 years of this building up and bubbling up for this family. And you can see in that picture just this huge sense of relief, that woman standing on the beach. The true and better David promised king, by the time Jesus shows up at Palm Sunday, we're talking 1,500 years. 1,500 years of terrible kings and two exiles and All sorts of foreign leaders and all sorts of um, uh, more terrible kings in that Hasmonean dynasty. These people are waiting for the coming king, right? There's so much more than just they kind of like Jesus happening here. All right, so let's jump into the text then. Uh, In Luke 19, uh, we'll start in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So, Jesus now has been teaching since chapter 9, right? Uh, and he's been on this path to Jerusalem, right? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So, in the middle of chapter 9, all the way to where we are in 19, there has been this, this path to Jerusalem. And it says here in, um, in this verse, uh, in our passage today, he's going up to Jerusalem. So, uh, Jerusalem, again, is at the top of a mountain right? So, on our maps, I always thought that was weird when I was younger. I never realized that. But you go down to Jerusalem from where he is, but that's looking at a map. When you're on the land, it's up at the top of the mountain. And what's happening is all the pilgrims are coming for Passover week, right? So, there's a ton of people showing up into the city of Jerusalem. And actually, let's see. Uh, Wait, let me do. Yeah, when, sorry. Sorry here we go. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he said to two of his disciples, so he's coming to Jerusalem. I have this map here. I just put it in the wrong place in my notes. Um, if you look at this map, this is the city of Jerusalem. It's actually not that big during the time of Jesus for hundreds of thousands of extra people to show up. And so um, at the very bottom of the map, do you see where there's that building uh, that's sort of only halfway there? That's The top, right there where it says number 19, that's like uh, the Mount of Olives. Just to the right there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the Kidron Valley goes in between. And then you got to go up some stairs uh, into Jerusalem. And so there's two small villages right there. 20, that building is probably Bethany. They don't really know where Bethphage was. It must have been some sort of a village somewhere right there. But you can see, so he comes into the villages um, and he stops outside of town in the Daly City, Colma version, but it's actually this, if you want a better picture of it, it's smaller. Imagine if Jesus was coming to the top of Knob Hill and he stopped in Hayes Valley. That's probably about the distance where this is. Um, and so before he comes in, he sends out two of his disciples on this job saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. So um, go find this cult. Matthew elaborates even more, tells us it was a cult of a donkey. Um, What's going on? There's this, again, it's this expectations of this coming king from Zechariah. There was a prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a cult, the foal of a donkey. So this verse is about the coming king, the promise of the coming king. And Matthew, whose gospel is really geared more towards showing that Jesus fulfilled the things in the Old Testament, he actually quotes this entire verse in his section on the uh, Palm Sunday stuff, right? And so uh, the idea, though, is this king is going to come, but in a humble way, right? Imagine if I was telling you the president's coming and he's coming in a 96 civic, okay? He's not going to be in the beast. You guys seen the beast? You know what that is? That's what they call the Cadillac that the president rides in, it's the limo, it's armored, it's like bomb proof. And the specs of this thing, like you go to jail for life if you release the specs of the president, like they don't play around, right? He's not coming in the beast. He's coming in my minivan, right? (laughs) Okay, so everybody knew when the king comes, he's going to be in John's minivan. And Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, there's a minivan waiting for me. Uh, Go get it, (laughs) you know? Um, All right, let's keep going. Uh wait, which part am I in here? Yeah, here we go. Uh, saying, go into the village in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And when entering, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found just as it had been told of him. Told of them. So the question, so Jesus now sends them into this thing. Go find this colt. Uh, if this donkey, if anybody asks you, just tell them, you know, I send it, you know. Uh, so the question is, is this a miracle, right? If he, some people will say this is a miracle. It was, here's the thing. This was actually common practice back in the day when a dignitary would come into town, something, he could sort of borrow stuff like this. It was kind of like those movies where I don't even know if a cop could actually do this, but in the movies they can where a cop comes up and, you know, they stole my car. I got to commandeer your vehicle. Get out. And he puts a gun in your face, and, oh, you know, and you get out and he chases the drug dealers away. And then he always jumps the person's car off a ramp. And I'm like, that's somebody's car, man. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's so that, that's one option. That privilege would have been extended to rabbis like Jesus. Um, so so what's going on here? Well, some people say this was a miracle. Jesus knew the details of all of this because he was the sovereign Lord of the universe. Is that true? Yeah, of course it is. That, could it be a miracle? Sure. What's probably more likely, though, is um, Jesus set this up beforehand. <laughs> right? He knew a guy. He was like, hey, have your donkey ready, and I'm going to send some guys, and they're going to come pick up the donkey. It's not to say the miracle thing is not possible, right? If he can raise the dead and walk on water, he can know where a donkey is, Without ever having seen it. But I just don't think, it doesn't seem like a miracle. I think it just, people reading this in the first century would go, oh, he probably set that up, right? Um, Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Let's see. And as they were untying the colt, uh, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord uh, has need of it. And so uh, this is this whole section where Jesus tells them, Tell him the Lord needs it. It's the only time in Luke, Jesus calls himself the Lord. I think that's interesting, is when he needs to borrow somebody's donkey. Um, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So, okay, the king is coming in the minivan, but mm, John forgot to vacuum the minivan. <laughs> so let's put our jackets down. So, you know, he, the king needs a saddle, but it's funny, he doesn't get a king's saddle. He gets some disgusting jacket that Peter's been sweating in you know, <laughs> and handling fish, right? Wasn't he a fisherman? So his fish-stinking, sweat-stinking jacket. That's what Jesus gets to sit on. And they set Jesus on it. I love this. That's a weird detail to put in. Jesus didn't get on the donkey. They put him on the donkey, right? Like the end of that movie, Rudy, you know, when they, he tackles that guy and they put him up on their shoulders. And um... by the way, did you ever hear Joe Montana ruin that movie? He was the quarterback on that team. And a couple years ago, somebody mentioned Rudy to him. He goes, you know what? I'm sick of this. Look, we all hated that kid, and we did it as a joke. And now it's like this whole thing. And I was like, wow, four-time Super Bowl champion. Can't let this guy just have his thing, huh? Anyway, but it's like that, right? They lift up Rudy, put him on the thing. Um, We meant, um, why mention that point? Why does Luke bring this up? Because he's painting a picture that these people are erupting in joy, as their king is coming, right? They're lifting up Rudy, put him on the thing. 15 years of anticipation are bubbling up to this very moment, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, right? This is the red carpet. Uh, Red carpets don't make any sense to me, and it drives me bananas, because are these celebrities too good to just stand on the sidewalk for a second? Does it really matter if the carpet's red? By the way, you guys know um, Parks and Rec, um, when Tom has all of his inventions and stuff. My favorite one was the red carpet insoles. So everywhere you go, you're walking on the red carpet. <laughs> anyway, so th- this is their version of the red carpet. Now, let's remember like, what's going on, though, in this actual culture. I'm not a huge hockey fan. I go with Steven once a year, and it's very fun to go like, in person. You know what happens when a guy scores three goals in hockey? What's it called? Hat trick. And then what do people do? They throw their hats onto the ice. And every time I think it, I see it, I think to myself, they could pry my hat out of my cold dead hands before I give up one of my hats, because then I'll only have like 60 more, (laughs) right? Now, here's the thing. Clothes in our culture are somewhat disposable. In this culture, they weren't. They were way more expensive than they are now. So look at this. Imagine this. This is what this would be like. Imagine if this royal dignitary was coming into town and you loved him so much and you didn't want him to walk in the mud, so you threw your MacBook down. Whoa, yeah, see, that's like the level here. Clothes were very expensive, and you only had one. Right? So Jesus now is in his minivan driving across MacBooks. We're really painting a picture, aren't we? <laughs> of what's going on here. All right, and as he was as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. So they're drawing near to Jerusalem. So on that map, they're going from the Mount of Olives down into that valley and then up that road towards the gate. Um, uh, This is where that whole thing took place. Probably lasted about a half an hour, this ride, where people are uh, calling out and worshiping, and it says a multitude of disciples. So this isn't just twelve guys you know, like uh, really getting into it, right? This is probably thousands and thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people came to Jerusalem every year for Passover. And so you can imagine how many people are there waiting and they're praising God. Luke is more general. Matthew gets more specific, right? He talks about they're shouting Hosanna in the highest and they're waving palm branches. Oh, wait, I actually put this in there. Um, Yeah, they're calling out Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he, Who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Um, You know what Hosanna means? It's like a plea for salvation. Lord, save us. It's a way to worship. Uh, So, uh, let's keep going. Oh, wait. Uh, I got to jump back a little. Now, why were they praising? Look at the end of this here. And they were praising God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. This is important. So, what Jesus has just done is making these people bust out in worship, thinking this guy is definitely, uh, definitely the king. Man, this is all messed up here. What verse is that? Okay, 37. These are all out of order. Some got wacky again. Um, <laughs> so what had just happened to these folks? Why did, what's the mighty works that they had seen? Luke actually doesn't tell the story, and I think it's odd, and I don't know why, and someday when I'm dead, I'm going to ask him, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave out what is, seems to be one of the more important stories during the time of Jesus, and I was going to read it, but I, when I went over and read my CNN notes, it reset my timer. I have no idea how long I've been talking, but, uh, (laughs) so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give you the paraphrase, okay, so one day, Jesus is hanging out with his buddies. His messenger comes up, your friend Lazarus is dying, and Jesus goes, okay, cool, see ya. Guy takes off. And his disciples go, aren't you going to go heal this guy? Jesus goes, eh, we'll see. You know, I'm paraphrasing. So then they get another message. You know, Lazarus has died. And Jesus goes, okay, good. (laughs) And he goes over to the house. Mary and Martha are weeping. If you had only been here, Lord. He's like, I know. You know, you should believe in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. And they go, I know you are. And Jesus goes, do you want to see something cool? go to the tomb and then my favorite verse in the whole bible in the king james version open the tomb no way by now lord he stinketh (laughs) and so jesus goes no no no! open the tomb he opens the tomb jesus at this point is weeping because he sees like death and the world is not supposed to be like this and he's broken hearted about it but he stands there and he goes lazarus come on man so Lazarus gets up, but he's all wrapped like a mummy. So, uh, you know, he does this sort of a walk. His feet are all wrapped up. I don't think it says this, but I bet you, I'll slap bet you when we get to heaven that Lazarus fell over in front of everybody. Right? And they're like, is this? So they unwrap him, and he's, he gets up. And then Jesus goes, hey man, how's it going? You want to get some dinner? And again, I, I don't know. It doesn't say, but I would slap bet you that Lazarus goes, Oh man, I'm back. <laughs> right? I was just in heaven. This sucks. I gotta stub my toe again. <laughs> right? Okay. Everybody saw this happen. This is a pretty this is a pretty big deal. And so the, that was like in the town right before, like just a few days probably before Jesus then shows up and tells everybody I'm the king and I'm riding on this donkey. All right, so they're they're praising him, saying, Blessed is the king. Who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory to the highest. So, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. There's no cryptic messages here. Everybody knows what's going on. This is the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you remember the beginning of Luke when Jesus is born? The angels show up, and what do they sing? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke is bookending this. The angels promised it. At the beginning of the story, only the angels knew. Nobody else knew. And then what happens? Everybody knows. Everybody is getting a glimpse of who Jesus is. Now, do the Pharisees like it? No, no, no. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So the Pharisees now are watching this all happen, and they're upset. And they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. I want to read this to you from John. Did that just go to John? Yeah, there we go. This is right after the Lazarus story. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, sort of, uh, said to them, uh, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God who are scattered about. So from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. Uh, There he stayed with his disciples. Uh, Yeah, so anyway. Sorry. These are the Pharisees. These are the leaders. uh, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. But all of these leaders are looking at this stuff that Jesus does because we can't let this go on because it's going to cause conflict with the Romans. So we got to do something about that. And so Jesus then, at first he hides away, and then all of a sudden he shows back up. And 100,000, 50,000, whatever thousand people are following him, throwing their their jackets on the ground. Jesus is on the donkey, just like Zechariah. And the Pharisees know their Bible, and they're looking at this going, this guy is claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming to be by riding this donkey into Jerusalem and letting these people call this out about him, the son of David and all this stuff, he is claiming to be the true and better David. And we're afraid because what this means is this is going to cause war with the Romans. That's what they thought. And so Jesus answered them though. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus explains the hope of the moment. We've been talking a lot about the hope of the people of God. And Jesus says. It's not just that the people of God have been waiting. All of creation has been waiting for this moment. All of creation has been waiting for the true and better David to come into Jerusalem and to do what he's going to do. And these next seven days that we're going to read about here are sort of the linchpin of God's entire plan to redeem the world. And so what Jesus is claiming here is, I am the one who deserves worship. And all of creation has been waiting for this promised plan of God to take place. And so that's where we're going to leave it for now. I want to say this. There are questions to put aside, that we're going to put aside. What about how the crowds turn on him, (laughs) right? Sunday, Hosanna in the highest. Friday, crucify him, right? So how does that work? Uh, What about how most of the people in this crowd actually didn't understand what kind of King Jesus was going to be? They were thinking he's going to come and he's going to defeat the Romans. So should we emulate? We're going to put all that aside for now. I just want to focus on what Jesus says. Look at who I am and look at what I'm doing and join creation in worshiping the king. Right? So let's, let's look at it. What does Jesus say from the Lazarus story? He claims to be the one who is worthy of worship. I am the resurrection and the life. He's not mincing words here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I'm the one worthy of worship. The Bible consistently portrays him as a king, right? He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is who Jesus is. He's the son of the most high, the one who's gonna sit on the throne of David. Matthew Jesus says this at the end of Matthew after the resurrection, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." That's something you can only say if you, you know, have all authority. If you are the king, the promised king. The book of Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's pretty important stuff. So the question then is, Jesus is the king, right? He's the one who's worthy of worship. He's the creator of the entire universe. And what does he do with this power, with this authority? What does he do with this kingship? Matthew talks about this. From the cross, over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Hanging from the cross, They wrote a sarcastic sign. You see this guy who's bleeding to death, struggling for air, coughing up blood, dying on this cross? There's your king. They thought it was funny. But it's true. This is what he did with the ultimate authority, the ultimate power. He submitted to death. Why? For your sake. So we don't want to say, worship Jesus the way the crowds did on Palm Sunday, because some of them turned on him, like we said, we'll get into later in Luke. But here's, I want to give you two kind of bits of application. How do we worship Jesus then? The first is we worship Jesus as the king because we have the bigger picture, right? They thought they knew what kind of king he was going to be. They had all these expectations, and they thought they knew, so they worshiped him. But they only thought they knew we know what kind of king he is. We can be certain about that, and that should drive us to worship right? They saw him in person, and so they got all worked up, right? You ever, you know, I mean, things are more powerful when you see them in person, generally. Uh, We've never seen him in person, but what we have is the Holy Spirit inside of us to get us all worked up about Jesus, right? They praised him with the words of the Old Testament. They're quoting Zechariah, they're doing all this, but we praise him with all of Scripture, the parts that at this time had not been written yet. So that's the first thing. We worship Jesus because we have the bigger picture of who he is. The second thing is part of our worship then is emulating him. He's the king of power. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He can do whatever he wants. And what does he do? He submits to death on a cross. He endured ridicule for radical love. Right, The author of life submitting to death for love. So then how can we, his people, if he's our king, and we're the people of the kingdom, how can we do any different than what he did? So I'll end then with these verses from Matthew. This is Jesus teaching sort of about himself, the the two sides of who he is, power and weakness. And it tells us how we can worship our king. Most of us just think of worship like this. John's going to play some songs right after this. We're going to sing a song right after this, the Hosanna song, because it's Palm Sunday, even though it's not Palm Sunday. It's sort of Palm Sunday. Um, That's worship, right? We sing, we think about God, we get these feelings in our heart, warm and fuzzies, we love Jesus. But worship is so much more than that. Worship is emulating the king. So look at this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this is Jesus' all-powerful, right? He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are, my blessed, who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, see that king language again, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right, so how does he know then who his people are? How does he know which ones are which? W- which ones to put where? This is what he says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers you did to me. See, Jesus says, how am I going to know who's the true worshipers? He doesn't say... I'm going to find the ones who closed their eyes the tightest when we were singing the song, who raised their hands the highest, who sang the loudest. That's Chris Robbins, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Right? That's not what he says. He says, I'm not the ones who are the most sincere. He says, look, this is how I know if you're a worshiper or not. Did you take care of the least of these? You basically, you may as well have done it to me. And so that's the way that we worship and we follow the king is by emulating his life. All this authority and power submits to the cross for love, lowers himself to serve other people. And so that's our greatest act of worship, is to live like Jesus. Not just Sunday mornings, and we're going to sing, and singing's great, and that's one of the ways we worship. But if you just show up and sing on Sunday, and you go home and you treat everybody like garbage, you're going to show up, and Jesus is going to go, I didn't even know you. Right? You're not one of mine. You didn't live like somebody who was really following the king. And so that's why he ends in Matthew, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? I'm the king. So what do I need you guys to do because I'm the king? Go out and make disciples. Go out and do kingdom stuff and love people. So the application to ask yourself at the end of this text is not, how do I worship in church on Sunday? Although, I, you know, also, that's important, right? We want to do that. But the question is, how do I worship like I really believe Jesus is the king every other day of the week? How do I serve him the way that he served me? And then just think about the people in your life. Who do you go to work with? Who do you live with? Who do you see on a regular basis? How do you treat them in a kingdom way? And when you do that, what you're doing is sort of a way, that's your way of throwing your jacket on the ground, calling out Hosanna in the highest. All right, let's pray.